Welcome to Perspectives, a new podcast from Zeit Contemporary Art, exploring art and its ideas. I'm your host, Samuel Shapiro. In this first episode, I speak with Dr. Ava Specker, a prominent psychologist at the University of Vienna. As a researcher in the Department of Cognition, Emotion, and Methods in Psychology, a member of the Empirical Visual Aesthetics Lab, and an editor of the journal Psychology of Aesthetics, Creativity, and the Arts, Ava dedicates her scientific career to questions that might at first seem to belong more to the realm of art history. She investigates how emotion is communicated through works of art, how we experience awe, how environmental context changes the way we look at art, and even how curatorial narratives shape perception. Accordingly, her research takes place in scientific laboratories and art museums alike. She's conducted fieldwork in the Albertina and Belvedere Museums in Vienna, the Queen's Museum in New York, and at the Venice Biennale. Uniquely positioned between the fields of psychology and art history, Ava is deeply invested in the question of what happens when we look at a work of art, and she's willing to challenge many of the fundamental assumptions that those of us in the field of art history tend to take for granted. In this conversation, we discuss experience and emotion, objectifying the subjective, data-driven curating, authenticity and reproduction, and how our current state of lockdown might impact our emotional relationship to art going forward. This episode is presented in conjunction with Zeit Contemporary Art's viewing room exhibition, Joie de Vivre, which runs online through May 31st. And now it's my pleasure to share with you Ava Specker's perspective. I want to just take a step back and ask how you got into this line of research. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, for me, it was coincidental, but not coincidental in the way that it was a coincidence that I found out that you could study such a thing, uh, that psychology of art was a thing that I could study. Um, and from, from that moment on, it was very not coincidental because I was always very interested in art. Um, my mom is a theater teacher, so she always took us to a lot of cultural stuff when I was young. Um, and then I was very interested in people. And in psychology of art, those two main, how do you say, interests come together. Um, so when I found that, I was like, oh, that's what I, that's what I want to do. Um, so from then on, it was very focused. Yeah, so you don't just have to study the art on the walls. You also get to think about what happens to the people standing in front of the art on the walls. Exactly, and this is for me the was for me is for me the main interest because I'm mainly interested what happens to the people who look at the art um, a lot more than the typical art historical questions um, that are more interested about the art on the wall itself. You know, how is it made? Who made it? In which historical context? Um, was it made these kinds of um, questions? Yeah, so you just mentioned that at a certain point you realized that the psychology of art was a thing. That's an experience I had, and I'm sure many listeners are also having. Uh, what, what does the field of the psychology of art look like? How did it take its current shape, and what is that shape? Oh, that's hard to say. So actually, what's fun, um, which I also only found out later, is that... Um, Psychology of art is actually one of the oldest psychology traditions, but we're very tiny. <laughs> you know, we're only a very small field, of course. Um, 
research into depression or generally into emotions, there's always a lot bigger. There's a lot more people involved. I think at the moment we're, we're expanding, we're getting um, bigger. I think it's because the humanities get, are getting more interested in general into uh, empirical approaches. Hmm. You know, interdisciplinary is a lot more in vogue nowadays than right. it used to be. Um, and I think this kind of intermix is creating a, a lot more interest um, in the um, in the field. I want to give listeners a better sense of your work by reading a few lines from the introduction to one of your recent publications titled Warm, Lively, Rough, Assessing Agreement on Aesthetic Effects of Artworks. So you write, art historians might describe a painting where the color red is dominant as warm, aggressive, or lively, with the tacit assumption that beholders would universally associate the work's key forms with specific qualities or aesthetic effects. And then you ask, is this actually the case? Do we actually share similar responses to the same line or color? And this seems like a very typical operation for you, taking a huge fundamental tenant of art history and subjecting it to rigorous scientific study so how do you generate the idea for a research project like that? Where does that kind of project come from? Yeah, so this is a very long, complex project. Um, but so it, it, like you started with the quotes, um, we're very used to the idea of art historians describing a painting as lively or warm or um, sad. And we kind of... And in, in the art theory, there's also a lot of theories um, about it. A lot of um, artists and art theories have written about color, specific aesthetic effects of colors or mm -hmm. of lines and what they are supposed to um, evoke, which of course became even more relevant um, when abstract art became uh, really big. Right. And this is when most of these theories uh, really um, uh, became more important and there's more theories on them. Um, so in this case, my art historic colleagues um, went through the literature and came up um, with a lot of the scales. Um, so there were art historians on your team. Mm -hmm. So we were a mixed team of art historians and, and psychologists. Um, so I was mainly responsible in trying to figure out how we could test these art historical ideas empirically. And they were mainly responsible for coming, you know, and the, the, the coming up with the sources for the theories and what would they what do they say and then of course we to see if people agree on aesthetic effects we would need to ask about aesthetic effects and mm -hmm. what are those and so they went through a lot of theories and came up with a list of what were the most um, commonly used terms because some terms you only find in one specific writer who talks a lot about one term um, or one concept, and we tried to find some that you know came back multiple um, times, like warm and cold. This one came up uh, a lot. Okay. And then we tried to assess um, if people actually agree. So if we look at the same painting, you and me, and we're asked to say if this is a warm painting, is this a lively painting, do we come up with the same the same judgments? Where we found out that mainly people disagree. Um, so actually warm and cold, happy, sad, and heavy light. So from weight, um, people agreed on, but only for the entire artwork. And for the other 11 questions we asked, they, um, they disagreed. 
Um, so we showed them whole artworks. We then from the artworks also took out single elements, single colors, single lines, then had a combination of colors and combination of lines. So people had to judge a lot of <laughs> images in the end. Um, yeah. There's a lot there. So just to recap, so you asked people about 14 different binaries trying to see if they agreed, if they would place an artwork on the same side of the continuum. And of those 14, the only three on which people did tend to agree were warm versus cold, happy versus sad, and heavy versus light. What do you think it was about those three binaries that hinted towards universality? This is kind of the big question, I would say. Um, I think warm, cold, we're used to these terms with colors a lot. So mm -hmm. there could be something, it could be something there. Um, why we, why we found those. This one, the interesting thing is that we didn't find it consistently for all images that were about colors, um, that the people consistently agreed. Um, happy, sad, I think it's another one that we're very used to judging things in real life as either happy or sad in a very general um, um, way. The interesting thing is that we also asked for positive versus negative um, and active and passive because normally from a psychologist's perspective, this was a very, you know, discussed <laughs> thing in our team. Um, happy and sad are different in many ways. So happy is positive and sad is negative, but happy is also active and sad, uh, sad is um, calm. Um, so they're not the most optimal pair. Okay. But there is a pair that we are very that in normal life, of course, we use all the time. Right. Um, but in some ways, happy and angry are similar because they're just either positive or negative, but they're both tend to be active. Interesting. Um, but in these two separated um, of positivity or activity, we didn't find anything, which also surprised me because I assumed that lines, especially for activity, we might have some you know, shared idea what an active line is, um, but apparently not so much. Um, but I think that there's probably something there that we're used to these kinds of terms. And apparently we use them a lot in real life and this is probably because they have some inherent meaning to us and they can also be applied to artworks. Um, or another visual stimuli, but I'm not sure. This is all very speculative. Why exactly these terms is is a bit of a guessing game at the moment. Um, huh. I um, I would say that makes sense. But so for all of those, uh, you one explanation you gave is that we're kind of used to describing things as warm or cold or happy or sad. Mm -hmm. That those are terms and labels with which we're familiar. Does that point to our associations of colors and emotions in this way being learned rather than innate, since the things that we agree on are the ones that we use in practice that are enculturated? I mean, this is a tricky question. I'm not sure. <laughs> um, with art, I found that, you know, art is, that's why it's called art, is a very artificial stimulus. So I find it hard to assume that something is innate that we associate a certain color with um, or certain artwork with happy or sad, it, there has to be some learned aspect in it. 
Interesting. And so the other big conclusion you drew from this study is that you found that people are more likely to share emotional effects when looking at a complete composition, a whole artwork you showed them, reproductions of works by Kandinsky and Moreau, among others. Um, and I do want to ask how you chose those works. That sounds like a very fun job. Um, but you found that people are more likely to share emotional effects when looking at a complete composition rather than looking at isolated elements like lines or colors. Um, so who gets to choose the artworks and what do you make of that finding? You know, you could think of a chair and I could have a different, very different chair or what, <laughs> what chair means to us can be very different for you and me. Right. But if we hear a sentence where I say, I sit on the chair, I think we probably um, are a lot closer to what the meaning is. Right. Um, in this case, and I have a feeling like maybe in artworks, this is the same process is going on. If we try to understand what this one color is, it's maybe a lot harder to understand was if we see a full artwork. Um, you know, the artist uses the different elements to come together in a certain way to, to give us a message. Um, and we can understand this message a lot better when we can see all of the elements rather than just one. That makes sense. So that's almost an argument for the power of intentionality and specificity that, you know, good artists can create a composition that more effectively evokes a specific emotion or feeling or mindset than can some loose line or color that might otherwise be ambiguous. Exactly. I think there's some reduced, the, the message gets clearer somehow. This is what I would assume. Um, how we selected the artwork sisters. <laughs> yes. Um, actually not as fun as you would imagine. That's okay. Um, uh, so it was clear that we wanted to, um, if possible, included artists that actually wrote um, on the topic. So Kandinsky, for example, he wrote a lot about aesthetic effects and what certain lines would mean or certain colors. Mm -hmm. um, and this is, of course, because we thought, okay, if we're going to test the theory. Um, it's best to see test it with artworks that are supposed to, you know, follow the theory that were designed in a way to um, fit um, this idea. Right. I mean, that's what's so fascinating about your line of work is that in a certain sense, you're asking similar questions that art historians might, um, but even a value like ambiguity, which is so highly prized in art history and art criticism mm -hmm. for its ability to create a space for nuance and complication and skepticism in a totally different way can be a huge complication to your work, mm -hmm. can prevent you from achieving the kind of findings that you need. Um, so when you do works like these, and when you have art historians on your teams, like you frequently do, I mean, do you find tensions between those two viewpoints, or are you able to work somewhat harmoniously? Both. I mean, of course, the skepticism of, yeah, do we, do we need the statistics is always there. And just the, like I said before, that it's a very different approach. As an art historian, normally you want to show kind of the complexity of a topic. You don't, you know, you want to look at the same topic from different angles to create a, you know, a well-rounded image of what happened. And we're always trying to do the opposite to reduce right. it. <laughs> and these kind of tensions to make it more complex and to reduce it tend to be, you know, not aligned. And also sometimes the questions we have are, are very different. Art historians, for an art historian, it could be super interesting, one particular painting, just this one painting. 
and this or this one line in the painting or this one thing about this one painting whereas we are normally looking for general things things that you would have in multiple paintings not just in this one right um painting and this leads to different questions and different interests and that don't always align um but i think overall it's really nice to work together you know in the moment it can be frustrating um but in the end it's nice because you're challenged by how the other person thinks or how what they would approach and you, you look at it in different ways and you come also with because they have different questions you come up with like, oh, i never thought about it this way maybe we should you know um so i think in the end they can complement each other yeah i think one compliment or challenge as you described it i mean it has to do with this idea of emotion as an art history student i often found you know feeling words emotional words to be somewhat taboo in the classroom but at the same time it was always clear that a starting point of art historical analysis is the way that one feels looking at a work of art um so what what do you from the psychological perspective think that the field of art history should be doing with this concept of emotion you can wonder you can ask is it an art historical question okay you know the way how you feel when looking at at an artwork is probably more of a psychology question than a, than an art history um question of course if you go somewhere interdisciplinary they can come together um for example if the artist meant for you to have a specific experience which you could assume for example Rothko had a very clear idea what he wanted the viewer to feel right um then then you get to a kind of this combination right um where um the art historical knowledge about the artist and about what it was supposed to convey can come um towards how it conveying or also a formal analysis of what a painting looks like could inform how it creates the emotions um in a fewer Though most of the time it shows that you know people tend to not be moved by the same artworks. Um, you know what I find an intensely you know moving picture might be very boring um, for you, which I guess is part of the <laughs> the fun of going to a museum. I think so. So before we leave the topic of emotion, I just want to pose you with one example. At the current exhibition that Zeit Contemporary Art is running right now, Joie de Vivre brings together artworks around the theme of joy locating that joy in formal aspects like primary colors and whimsical forms um but so what should it tell us about maybe the nature of emotions or about the nature of joy if our common assumptions about joy's formal expressions are less universal less shared than we thought i mean does that does that get back to the heart of emotion about what joy is I mean if things are happy people agree on so joy is probably a good okay. a good one to pick in this case <laughs> also what you can um something like Chaudet Vivre what's interesting is that yes there's a few formal aspects that are similar like bright colors but if you look at the artworks they're very different yeah um and I think this is kind of the um, the interest of this is there is okay it's all joy but you can kind of show how in many so many different ways joy can be expressed and for you maybe um the color work um really expresses it and for me the Damien Hirst um and this can there's some always some interaction right between the viewer and um 
and the work and potentially I would say that having all of these works together that are joyful um, might also make each individual work look more joyful. <laughs> this makes sense. Right, um, and that comes back to this question of context and grouping that we started exactly. with from your Albertina project. So let's yeah, let's just talk about that Albertina project. Um, so you recently published a paper called "Radically Revolutionary or Pretty Flowers: An Experimental Museum Study of the Impact of Curatorial Narrative, Highlighting Artistic Deviance on the Visitor's Assessment of Artist Influence." Um, is it great? A long title. <laughs> no, I, I love "Radically Revolutionary or Pretty Flowers" though. Um, so this was a field experiment you did in the Albertina Museum in Vienna, examining the reception of the same work by Claude Monet, a late water lilies painting, in two different locations in the museum. Um, can you tell me about what that entailed? Sure. So um, in the lab, my colleague showed uh, in, a, in a study that I wasn't involved in, um, that depending on which artworks you show with a certain painting, with the target artwork, should to say, um, the way that we perceive the artist is different. Um, so in this case, for example, if, if we stick with Monet, he's a good example. If you think of the salon paintings in the 19th century, and so if you see two of those, and then you see a late Monet painting, then it's very different, right? Um, in, in contrast, if you show two Impressionist artworks and then you show the Monet, it's very, very similar. Mm -hmm. And she basically showed that um, if the style is different, then the artist is seen as more influential and more impactful. Because we get this sense of like, oh, this person is doing something new, that's interesting. You know, it's this kind of originality that we, that we appreciate in arts. And for me, what this reminds me of is that often if you go to an exhibition like the one in the Albertina, big retrospective of a single artist, then normally there's a chronological ordering, or often, where you see first the artist's early work and then you see how the style develops. So I figured this would be a pretty um, comparable real life setting um, to the lab. And I figured that if we see this kind of narrative where we see how the artist develops, we will see them as more influential. Um, and the benefit is that the Albertina owns the Monet <laughs> that is normally in their permanent collection. Um, so we could use the right. exact same artwork, both in the same museum, but in a different context. Because in the permanent collection, it hangs with other Monets in, an, in a room full of impressionism. And this is exactly the context where it doesn't look so, you know, revolutionary, where it more looks like the pretty flowers and it's nice. And whereas with the Monet, chronologically, you see that he's getting more and more abstract and it show, seems a lot more, you know, original and neo. So in the monographic exhibition, the paintings are set up to show a stylistic break from his early career, but in the permanent collection galleries, um, it's shown with other paintings to give you kind of a coherent sense of Impressionism as a whole. So the same artwork was seen in this monographic exhibition um, um, that we saw that the viewers thought that Monet was a lot more influential and a lot more important um, than he was perceived in the permanent collection. Which is for me also quite cool in a way because Monet is so well known. So the idea that we can switch 
how people perceive such a famous artist just by hanging the work with some other artworks um, is pretty cool. <laughs> or I liked it. No, I think it's fascinating. Um, and it's, it, I mean, it's very bold to say that we can sort of quantify or objectify something as amorphous and difficult to pin down as, you know, influence or originality or authenticity. Um, and so when you decide you want to take on a topic like originality um, mm -hmm. or novelty, how do you go about creating parameters by which something like this can be measured? Oh, <laughs> it depends. So most of my work um, relies a lot on, on self-report, so a lot on just asking people questions. Okay. Um, I like this method because in the end, what I'm really interested in is this kind of subjective experience. And it's really hard to pin down subjective experience mm -hmm. by not <laughs> if you don't ask people about right. it. And also, if you go to the museum, what's feasible? <laughs> you can't bring a big you know, brain scanner <laughs> right. to the museum and, and, and put it there. So this also is always a big concern. So what do we gain from having an empirical answer to a question, in this case, whether curatorial context matters, um, that you know, curators might have told you some time ago they thought that context matters. But what do we gain from having kind of an empirically grounded, scientifically definitive answer to that question? Yeah, it depends a bit. I mean, if you think um, empirical evidence doesn't matter since we knew it all along. Um, then I guess it doesn't add so much anyway. Um, but what you can also sometimes find if you test it empirically that things that you thought were definitely true end up not being so true hmm. um, or the other way around, but it doesn't have to be. Um, and I think also um, it can also ground, it can provide some evidence that, you know, things that you thought were working are actually working. Um, which of course also can can provide support if you want to get funding or if you um, want to um, do a new curatorial design and yeah and think about it because in a way if it doesn't matter then we can just hang the artworks the same way all year long. Yeah, I like that idea of giving curators kind of scientific ammunition um, so that they can bring to their directors a claim for a new exhibition design or a new wall hanging program. Um, and you write about that. You write in the paper that your work supports an evidence-based approach to curation in which curators can use empirical findings to achieve their curatorial goals and shape visitor experience, which is a totally fascinating claim to me. Because on the one hand, I know that curators are always desperate for visitor feedback, and this would be an incredible wealth of that to give to them. On the other hand, one wouldn't want to see curatorial decisions, which are usually historically informed and nuanced, mm -hmm. steamrolled by algorithms driven by big data harvested from eye-tracking software. Uh, so uh, yeah. what are the benefits and challenges of bringing social science like that into the museum? And how do you stay away from the dystopian and robotic? It depends, but it, it, um, it's also a very controversial thing. I think at the moment, so um, this is kind of, um, 
I like this new kind of direction, but it was kind of like a first step saying, oh, we could do, you know, evidence-based curation. I think it can help, but I think you will never get to the computer um, side of things because in a way, some of the parts is always a question of what do you want to achieve with the exhibition? Okay. And this is not an empirical question, right? This right. is something, you know, someone has to make the decision, okay, with this exhibition, what do we want to, what is kind of the story we want to tell? What is the, the, the thing we want to say? And for example, you might want to more focus on, you know, how impressionist works um, come together in the permanent uh, exhibition and show when a, with his contemporaries who were working in similar styles, um, and potentially for a different curatorial goal, this is the better exhibition. Um, you know, this is hanging it this way it might be better to achieve that people say, "Ah, oh, yeah, now I understand like how the people, how they come together, how they're similar." But it doesn't achieve showing the message that Monet was so radical and new. Right. So, so it depends this... very much on what you want, I would say. And in this way, I think it doesn't come to the computer thing because there's no one best exhibition. Right. So the evidence-based approach can help curators achieve their goals. It isn't dictating what those goals are to them. Exactly. Interesting. Huh. So as we bring this conversation to a close, I want to ask you a couple questions specific to the strange moment in which we're currently living. Mm -hmm. For many of us, our experience of art have been limited to viewing digital reproductions on our screens and you've worked with reproductions in your laboratory, as you were just describing, of manipulating the colors on the Van Gogh. Um, and now you're starting a new research project into the issue of reproductions. So how should we think about viewing reproductions, or what are, for you, the big questions around them? Yeah, I mean, so how should we view reproductions? Depends on what you want. I mean, so reproductions are, especially the really high-quality ones, if you can imagine that you were an art historian in the 18th century and you had to travel by <laughs> horse <laughs> to see the original works, of course, it's great that now you can, you know, um, look at them online and, and do a lot of research. So they can, be super, <laughs> they can be super informative. So I'm not against reproductions. Um, but, but for me, the interesting thing is, is how they, how the experience is different. I, I I have a feeling like it's very obvious that looking at the Van Gogh on, you know, my computer, especially in the lab, <laughs> you know, our lab is in the basement. It's really not so aesthetic. Um, it's very different from if I would say, see that exact same painting in the museum in real life. Mm -hmm. But there's not so much um, actual empirical evidence for this. And actually the little empirical evidence that there is goes in the opposite direction. Um, showing that there's actually not much difference for difference for aesthetic experience. Really? Um, yes, weirdly enough, really. Um, and I also have this feeling like this cannot be true. Um, there has to be something different. And this is basically why I want to go uh, a bit into that direction to find out how can it be that we haven't found evidence for this um, because especially now, as you say, you know, in the corona time, if you, if you look at the artworks online, I think it becomes very obvious to us that it's so different than, you know, looking at the thing in real life. I have the same feeling and look forward to seeing your work on this. <laughs> um, so then just finally, 
As someone who studies our emotional relationships to works of art, how do you think this period of art-free isolation will change the way that museum goers and art viewers relate to works of art when they're let back into the galleries? It's an interesting thing. I thought about this a lot. I mean, it depends. Some people might have small artworks at home and that they don't have to look at a computer at or, or bigger artworks, depending on how much money sure. um, <laughs> you have. Um, but I mean, a relatively small artwork doesn't have to be so expensive if it's not by someone famous. Right. Um, um, one thing that I that I wondered about is that now we all have to keep distance. Um, museums have become more and more popular, so more and more people are going, mm -hmm. um, which can also lead to the annoying thing if you go to a so-called blockbuster exhibition that you feel like you have no room to look at the artwork. So potentially with less people in the museum, you would have an even better experience because you have more room to freely um, uh, look at the artwork. Um, I think also, I mean, you know, the, the fact that people bother to go to an online museum in Corona times, yeah. you know, shows that there's something about this experience that people don't want to miss. Um, and of course, we focus on visual arts, which is quite hard to have in your home most of the time. If it's not a if it's not a reproduction, um, but especially locked up in our homes, we're you know watching movies on Netflix, reading books, listening to music. We're also engaging with art all the all the time. Um, I think it will become even. I think most people feel more that the limits of what you can offer online because you know with digitalization a lot of museums offer really great online resources and it's not that these resources are not great but they're limited they can only yes. offer us certain things and i think this kind of will become more relevant right in the beginning i think it's like oh everything should be digital we should have these great things you know on google you can somewhat walk through the art museum. Um, but I think it, yeah, the limits become more visible. Yeah, um, and I'm sure that will play into the work you're doing with context that's the plan. coming out of it. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, Ava, thank you so much for coming on Perspectives. It's been a pleasure yeah. talking to you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Perspectives, a podcast from Zeit Contemporary Art. Until next time, I'm your host, Samuel Shapiro.